Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to another edition of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I bring back Brandon Dorman. Brandon is a remote coach at Training Think Tank, an organization that I talk frequently about on the MyFit podcast. And Brandon works with a bunch of different types of clients all throughout the world, including CrossFitters, military personnel, triathletes, weightlifters, and field sport athletes. And in today's episode, I wanted to give some love to the master's athletes. We've talked about it many times. Master's athletes kind of get left out in the rain. And I really wanted to shed an, or give an episode on how to become a more competitive master's athlete, whether that's just at your gym or you want to look at getting into the quarterfinals, local competitions, or maybe even pursue the CrossFit games. Uh, the first part of our conversation, we talked about the new season structure. Brand is very much uh, passionate, involved with uh, CrossFit and what they're doing to get become more legitimized as a sport. And he loves to talk about that. So I wanted to pick his brain on what he thought about the new season structure and if he'd make any changes to what uh, Eric Rosa has put out in his new position as owner of CrossFit. After that, we talked about what are Brandon's core values for coaching master's athletes. And these core values kind of set up the rest of the conversation. And the core values were having quality and consistent training sessions. The second one is having great movement economy. And the third is improving absolute strength metrics. And again, that kind of opened up the dialogue for the rest of the show, talking about how can we improve those three things. Later, we dove into some listener questions and talked about the differences between men and women master's athletes, how we can train them, how coaches can relate a little bit better to them, some of the expectations and things that they need to work on specifically. We then talked about how to boost your recovery and also how to balance high intensity training also and also with your recovery. A lot of different nuggets in here for masters athletes. And I hope you guys have some stuff that you can take away and bring into your gym. Brandon is a very knowledgeable and passionate coach, somebody that I trust a lot and lean on to when I have any questions uh, when it comes to program design. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. I do, however, have to put out a footnote to you guys and say, I apologize for some of the audio. Uh, we were in and out a little bit his audio or his wi-fi wasn't great down at training think tank so uh hold on with me as best you can i did what i could at about the halfway mark i turned his video off and the audio improved drastically so first half a little bit sketchy a little bit spotty second half is much better also if you enjoyed this episode like hearing from brandon and you're a newer listener i recommend dialing it way back to episode 36 when i brought brandon on for the first time and we talked about strategizing workouts and creating separation values value. So uh, again, two different types of topics, one a little bit more about intro workout, this more a little bit about masters specifically. But if you like Brandon and the stuff he has to say, check out episode 36. 
Also, if you're looking to get new fitness apparel, some new gear for the gym, make sure to go to legends.com and use code MYFIT215, M-I-F-I-T-215 to receive 15% off your order. All right, without further ado, let's get to this master's conversation with Brandon Dorman. Let's go. Brandon Dorman, welcome back to the MyFit podcast. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for coming back on, man. It's been a long time. I think it was about two years ago we had you on the show and we talked about all things strategizing workouts and talking yeah. about, uh, yeah, your, your, your kind of famous lines about how we can uh, become a little bit better within a workout. But today we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about master's athletes. And you've gotten the chance to program alongside a lot of master's athletes in the design, obviously with your client list of training think tank. So I want to talk about everything we can with the people that sometimes get left out. That they, they always get left out and it's kind of sad especially seeing how hard most of the masters athletes work and i'm sure we'll dive into it but i also think that they uh they have the harder task in that most of them have full-time jobs and they're still training on top of that and as i you know i actually was thinking trying to think back when the last time we talked but i think i only had one kid at the time now i have mm -hmm. two kids and the reason i say that is a lot of these masters athletes have two or three or four kids and they're still doing it i'm like with two, I'm like on the end of my rope. I don't know how they do it, but it's pretty incredible. It's so impressive, man. Before we get into it, I'm, we just got done with the semifinals. And so the new structure, yeah. another new season here uh, brought to you by CrossFit. And you guys at Training Think Tank <laughs> are very much involved with the sports side of things and trying to figure out how we can make things more legitimized um, and just getting into the, the more of the official sports side, not necessarily just the affiliate side of things. So I'm curious, Brandon, how did you like this season? structure? What were some of the things that maybe you would do differently uh, going into next year? And then thirdly, how could CrossFit do a better job at becoming a little more official and more professionalized? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I'm definitely not in the room making those decisions. So this would all be my opinion. But I actually love the new season structure. I think that the key for CrossFit and or any sport is to have some consistency. And that doesn't mean that you don't upgrade, but you just don't completely delegitimize what you have and then try to shift over to something brand new, mm -hmm. at least not without counsel from either a governing body and or like an athlete's union. So I think what we've missed in the past is, you know, it's been kind of like these few at the top that are making all the decisions in the sport. And we don't have either an athlete's union that's saying like, hey, let's protect the athletes and let's talk about like the schedule is for them and also in the sport and all those studies, like the other major sports you see, you know, here in the US, the NBA or the NFL or NHL or MLB, they have this body that kind of comes together with the players unions or those athletes unions. And they kind of come up with a game plan for the season. They have those collective bargaining agreements. And I know that we're not there as a sport. You know, we're, we're not, we don't have millions and millions and millions of dollars or billions of dollars in the case of the NFL or the NBA coming in. So maybe those decisions aren't as big, but they're just as important if we want to grow the sport. So I know that doesn't necessarily answer your question, but I think that the first step needs to be for the sport to come up with a game plan that says, hey, this is our plan and we're going to upgrade it. But this season schedule that we had this year with the feedback of the athletes and then maybe the gyms or the affiliates that were joined in on the open, we're going to do this every single year. And then the changes will be announced months ahead of time and they'll just be upgrades as opposed mm -hmm. to like, we're going to erase this schedule and change it again. The problem is like you think back over the last four years, it went from the regional format to cutting it down to, you know, only so many people in the regionals, which obviously disappointed people, but wasn't a huge change to a sanctional format to last year with COVID. They basically screwed over the teams and a ton of games athletes that basically got cut off that list because they didn't have it. And last year's an anomaly. And I get that. I, I think that one of the challenges obviously with COVID for everyone was trying to figure out how to 
be safe and, and effective with still running a, a, a sport. But other sports did it well, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe there's not enough money like the NBA to have sure. a bubble. They, they figured out a way to do it. And I think they probably could have figured out a way to still have the teams and maybe masters and teens since we're talking about masters and teens here. But overall, I think if we can have some consistency, that will help legitimize the sport. And then I really do. I think we actually talked about this last time I was on. I am a huge proponent of having an athletes union where the top mm-hmm. athletes in the sport and then also affiliate owners that have been in the sport for a long time help guide the process with Eric Rosa and Dave Castro and whoever else is making the decisions, because that's going to allow this kind of like that true collective bargaining agreement to happen where everyone can be happy or at least compromised on what's best for the sport and grow it. And, you know, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but I think it's another really important point. One of the problems we had as a sport was when Glassman said, I want it to be about health and wellness and not about the sport. The challenge with that is the sport should be a means to that end, as opposed to cutting it out completely, because most of us came to this sport believing in health and wellness, but we came to it because of the sport, right? Like we saw Rich Froning or Jason Khalifa back in the day. And we're like, wow, those guys are amazing. Like I want to be a part of that. And because of that, we got in and we were already bought in. I know you were bought into health mm-hmm. and wellness and that's what you do on a day-to-day basis. And so do I, like my number one goal is not to make someone get to the games. It's like to keep them healthy for when they're 60 and so they can play with their kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, or to reach other goals that they may have. And so because of sport, we've allowed this thing to kind of grow into a health and wellness project. But Glassman basically said, let's take this to the side. Let's get rid of all these deals we have with the sport, kind of do its own thing, as opposed to it just being something that maybe we can kind of consolidate everything and still push all of these, you know, whatever the goals are for the, the, the overall brand of CrossFit. And I don't know what Rose is doing with that, but I'm sure that he's had that feedback. Mm, that's interesting, Brandon, because I had the thought and the idea that and I don't know if this disagrees with what you're saying, but I think it's more important to separate sports versus health, just so people have the understanding of like, like I look at, um, I look at like the quarterfinals, right? We talked about how there's 180 GHDs and it was like, we had some people in the affiliate that like, they're not ready for something like that. And so I don't know if the idea, and we've talked about it many times too, but what, what are your thoughts? If we can just, I know we weren't going to get into this, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, no, it's good either separate or not separate the idea versus the sport of CrossFit versus the affiliate stuff. Can you just continue to open that up? Yeah. Let me clarify that. I think that they should be separated, but they should still be under the same brand. So what my my understanding of what happened, like with deals, for example, like Glassman basically said, I don't care about this. I don't, he didn't say this. This is my interpretation of what happened with saying, screw the TV deals. Let's fire all the media people. Let's just kind of uh, outsource it to the sanctionals or whatever. So he didn't want anything to do with that, which, you know, whatever he made that decision. But what happened with that is it actually, that means of getting to the goal of ha- having people come into the gym and learn about health and wellness. None of those people were seeing it on TV to get into the gym. So now it's just word of mouth from gym to gym, which maybe still works. But my point is, is if the sport grows, the health and wellness side can also grow. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they're one and the same. I, mm-hmm. I think the 180 GHG sit-ups probably didn't make sense for, for most people, right? But that is the sport and you just have to accept that. So those that want to do that have to be prepared and trained for that. And we can talk about like, what should a master's athlete do for that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. With that said, if the sport is big, so will the health and wellness side. That's just, that's kind of my point on that. Yep. I totally agree. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about the master's athletes. So this year we, for the people that are a little bit newer or maybe have been out of the game for a little while, can you walk through for a master's athlete? What's the path to competing through the open? If they want to go to the games, what is that? What does the new season structure look like for master's athletes? 
Sure. So everyone still does the open. This year, it went from five weeks or five workouts to three weeks, and they still had four tests. So within those three weeks, one of the last week, obviously had two tests. So four scored workouts. The top 10% in each of those master's divisions then made it to their quote unquote stage two, which is their online qualifier. The 34 and under, for those that are not aware or don't follow the sport, they went from the open, their stage one, to a stage two, which was still online. And then they went from a stage two, the top 10%, into semifinals. There was basically a, a step that was skipped for masters. And I think the reason for this was they assumed that less masters would sign up. In reality, there were just as many masters this year as 34 and under. There's like 100, I don't know wow. the actual number, so maybe we can look that up, but 130,000 masters signed up. Now, obviously, there are a, a ton of different divisions, right? You have, I don't know how many it is, six or seven divisions on both the male and female side. So when you break it down, those groups are still smaller. But the, the masters group as a whole, they were represented very, very well. Uh, and I think that will continue to be the case because they have more money to do it. And obviously their passion, they want to find a hobby and all those kind of things. So the, with, within the top 10%, then it went basically when they did the age group qualifier, then the top 20 from each division, then make it to the games. And so then they'll compete the same time, well, a few days before, but that same week at the games, uh, the end of July. Mm -hmm. And what were your thoughts on that structure? Did you, were you a, a fan of that for masters athletes specifically, or, or would there be something that you would change? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there, if I actually sat down and really thought about this, there'd probably be things that I would recommend. Uh, I actually really like the structure of having kind of a, a multifaceted process and they've kind of had this in the past, right? Like there was the open and then the online qualifier led game. So not much changed for the masters athletes, but what it does is it kind of is like everyone can be a part of the open. And then a select few can be a part of the age group qualifier. And then an even more select few uh, can be a part of the games. And within those workouts, they went from kind of like basic skills to a little bit higher skills. And then obviously the games kind of test this like robust testing body of all kinds of different things, which I think is a really good thing to do if you want to find the, the fittest person. I think the the better question there would be, did they have the right tests? And that always is going to be, well, they're probably with something missing. Like no matter who writes it and how mm -hmm. many people write it, there's always something that someone could complain about. I think the challenge with something like the open is you try to make it as inclusive as possible, but then you don't dial in all the correct tests to get someone to the next step. Now, with that said, the nice thing about what they did is having the top 10% go is you still kind of filter out. Like that's a, that's a wide enough audience that you still have all the best in there. And then those that don't really fit, they'll get cut out before the game. So you're still getting some of the top athletes. But as you saw at the semifinals with 34 and under, there were people that couldn't do muscle-ups. Like mm -hmm. there's no business that they should be going to a semifinal. And I don't mean that in a mean way, especially on the female side. Like I know it's tough. I know the sport's tough. I know sometimes, you know, we had athletes that tested out that should have made the games and they went there and they didn't do as well. And, and that just happens with performance anxiety and all of those things. But through those tests, through those stages, when you get to the semifinals or when you get to the games, you should have 20 athletes or 30 athletes, or 40 athletes, however many people are selected that all are on the same level. And right now, whether it's depth in the sport or just the testing body, we're not quite there yet. We're not getting that. We're not, you know, the top five are really good. And then mm -hmm. there's kind of like this huge mm -hmm. separation from there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. I think the, the silver lining about it is though, that because the sport is getting older and people are also aging, the master's division yeah. is all is growing, you know, as, as yeah, when the, it's awesome. the sport started, the master's part was you know, kind of a second thought and it still is in some ways, but I see as more people get older now that we're 10 years in the people that were 25 when, when they, they started, started, 
they're now 35 plus. So it's cool to see that side of things grow and continue to flourish and grow as the years go on. And hopefully that'll continue to trend. You know, it's really cool about the master's groups now, especially the 35 to 39 is some of them are just as good as the younger athletes, you know, like they've been in the sport for a long time, but like someone, Sandra Pacelli, she, she made the games and she also won the master's 35 to 39 division. So she could go either to the master's games or the regular games. Obviously she's going to the 34 and under, which makes sense, but uh, it's pretty impressive to see people like that. Or um, I know there's a couple others in the male division as well that are super competitive on both sides. And so mm-hmm. it's just really cool to see that at 35, 36, 37, those athletes who have been in the sport for 10 years still have the game to compete with the 20 year olds, or the 22 year olds. Very cool. Well, let's dive in, man. So you've had the opportunity to work with the design. Those of you guys that don't know, I've referenced it a few times, but it's the online training program through Training Think Tank. And uh, you work with the master's athletes specifically writing that program along with several others. But Brandon, what what would you say are some of your big core values when it comes to training master's athletes? Or in other words, like what's important for you to remember when you're sitting down and writing programs for them? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll be completely honest in the design. It's very challenging because, well, there's a, there's a couple of factors there. The first one would be you're writing for multiple groups. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you have those that are competitive or want to be competitive. And you have those that just want to, you know, maybe be competitive in their gyms uh, and stay healthy first and foremost, or, or like I mentioned earlier, Hey, look, I just want to be able to play with my kids when I'm 50 or 60. Like yeah. that's, that's where they're at. And then the other, other side of the coin is you also have with multiple divisions. So within that, you know, you have the competitive athletes, maybe that are 55 plus and the competitive athletes that are 35 to 39. Well, there's a 20 year age gap there. And as we all know, like just watching, not, not take training aside, look at the 35 year old versus the 55 year old things change in 20 years, you know, <laughs> just life and what it throws at you. Plus all the other things that go into stress at work or you know, maybe training stress. If you add that back in. So they're, they're trying to, what does a 35 to 39 year old need that a 55 to 59 year old maybe doesn't need or does need, right? Whatever it may be. So trying to dial all that up has been a challenge. But I, one of the things actually, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago in our, one of our design meetings is it's really made all of us be more thoughtful about how we program for different age groups and, or even our younger athletes. And what are the most important things to kind of dial up in training to make sure that they continue to get better. But to go back to that question, I think the first thing that I often wellness that thing for co- says I want to make the games to be able to have a good training year at that age you need to have consistency. One of the tendencies we've seen is that as you get older you have higher tendencies to get hurt or tweaks or whatever it may be. And if you're getting those you know every couple of weeks or once a month whatever it may be and you're having to cut your training short, you know, that's one training week that's, you know, maybe good. And then two that are, you're taking off and then another good training week. There's so much inconsistency. You can't make the progress that you want. So when I'm writing a program, I need to make it as holistic as possible to make sure that we're creating progress, but we're also keeping them in the game. So I want them to train. Let's say, you know, if I'm looking at a year, I try to make the goal of like 80% of their training sessions are quality training sessions. And if we can get to that point, you know, four out of five training sessions a week, then we're on a really good path towards success. Because I know that even though people may be better or training harder or stronger, whatever it may be, if they're getting hurt, you know, whatever happens to them, they are obviously losing that training time. And maybe they only get 60% or 50% compared to what we're doing. So we're able to put more time in. So that would be the first step. I think after that, then you do need to look at, okay, where are the separators in the master's divisions? Now, this is much different from 35 to 39 or 55 to 59 plus kind of use that example as we talk through this. Cause again, that's a wide gap. 
But I think that overall, movement economy is number one. That's more important as you get older. The 55 plus, if you can move well, you're going to be in the top 20 as long as you have some decent capacity. And then strength numbers, right? Like your absolute strength numbers obviously really help with the new bias in the sport. And we saw that in stage uh, one and two this year for 34 and under, how everything was biased towards high power. Well, it's pretty similar actually with the online qualifier workouts for the master's athletes, basically the same workouts with like small tweaks. So being a little bit stronger, having a good front squat, for example, or, you know, being able to do the heavy overhead squat and box jump really helped with their overall score. So I think that that's going to be the trend moving forward. Mm -hmm. Those are great, man. I want to break those three down. So the first one is quality and consistency. You said something about four to five, four out of five workouts. I want to have quality as a coach. So first of all, what does that mean? And then second, as a coach, how do you program for, for quality? Yeah. Well, I, I think it probably means something different again for the younger sure. age groups and the older ones. If, if I have a 35 to 39 year old, uh, even if they're not feeling well, if I, if I'm individually coaching them, so this is different maybe for a group program, sure. but if I know them, then I'll say, Hey, even though you don't feel great, let's push through this today based on whatever it may be. Whereas a 55 year old, I may tell them to kind of back off a little bit or adjust their training to make sure that, you know, if they're tired or sore or beat up or stressed because of work, a lot of them have full-time jobs. I'll tweak the training and make it something different. Either way, the goal though, is still that quality. And what I mean by that is making sure that they're getting the most out of the intentions for the day. So if the 35 year old has a, a, you know, a bunch of snatch work, but they're missing every single one, it's as simple as like, Hey, look, that's not quality for the day. So let's lower these percentages. You're supposed to do, you know, six sets of two at 82% today. We're going to lower this down. We're going to do six sets of two at 75% or 70% and just make sure that your positions are perfect. And one of the cues I always give people is video each set, review in your off time and then start making some tweaks or adjustments to the next set. Because again, this is training time. We're not trying to do this for time. If it's, let's say some snatch technical work, let's do it for quality. And that's kind of what I mean, like perfect position so that we can dial those up so that when we get into the competitive season, like right now for most athletes, other than those going to the games, it is their off season. We're trying to dial up kind of the, the technical stuff, the movement economy, making sure we're building a nice base for next year. If it's February of next year and we're dialing it up for the open, mm -hmm. then maybe it's, you know, now we're doing a snatch ladder or we're doing, you know, 20 for time. And it's not as important that we're looking at like everything being perfect. Maybe you miss a rep. That's okay. What's your overall time? And then it's more about the performance. Did I get you? Are you still there? Can you hear me? Yep. I got you. That, okay, that sorry. That keeps training think tank Wi-Fi, man. <laughs> it keeps cutting out on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're good, man. I caught the end of it. I, I think we're on the same page. So, so with, with the quality okay. side of things, to me, it seems like there, there, needs, there also needs to be from the athlete side, a sense of humbleness. Not a lot of ego can get trapped in these guys because they got to be okay with training for quality, which means usually taking weight off the bar. Do you see that being some sometimes a roadblock for people that are masters athletes that maybe have done things a certain way for a certain period of time? And now you're asking them to dial things back and be more quality focused. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think that's probably the hardest thing, not only for masters athletes, but for any athlete in sport, you know, I, I think the tendency in the sport of CrossFit is it almost self-selects those type A, like go get it personalities, you know, <laughs> all of us are kind of that a little bit and we want to work hard. And then you hear mantras like hard work pays off or, you know, all, all these other things. And I'm not saying like, that's true hundred percent, but we need to then define what hard work is. And sometimes hard work isn't just killing yourself in the gym. Sometimes the hard work is lowering the load, being kind of mentally resilient and saying, I'm only working on my technique today. 
for most people, it's harder to pull back and say, I'm only going to do this for quality than it is to push yourself as hard as you can, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's easier for me just to kind of kill myself in the gym, even though that it physically hurts emotionally and mentally, that's a harder effort for me, right? Mm -hmm. And and so what that, the kind of way that I always frame this is like, sometimes hard work means that we are pulling back. That's that's kind of the hard mental work that we have to put in. So I do think that that's probably one of the biggest roadblocks. And we're all taught when we get into, I mean, think about, you know, the first workout you did, I'm sure was something super hard and you mm-hmm. fell in love with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like you hear the story all the time that I did Fran or I did Fight Gone Bad and then I got crushed and now I love it. And it's such a like masochistic way of looking at, at things, but it's true. Like that's what, that's what we do. But that doesn't necessarily breed success. Maybe the cream rises to the top and some people get away with that. We've seen that in the sport forever. But for most of us, and as the sport grows, I think it's going to be more and more important that we have smart training programs. And we kind of I love kind of the more thoughtful progression throughout a year. Mm-hmm. I think that makes total sense. The second one was a topic that I really want to get into, and that's movement economy. And I actually have to give you credit, man, because I first learned the words movement economy through you, and I'm sure you learned it through Max or whoever, whom, but I appreciate you teaching me many, many years ago about movement economy. But for the people that aren't as familiar with the phrase movement economy, can you talk a little bit about what that is and why is it more important per se for the master's athletes than anybody else? Yeah. I mean, I think the simplest way that I would define movement economy is finding the the way that you could use the least amount of effort per rep in any specific movement. So in other words, if I'm doing a thruster, how can I set up my feet, my arms, my front rack, my squatting position, my torso, whatever it is that you're create there the limitations that may be there for you. How can I set up in a way that's the most efficient for my ability to move this at the speed that I need to move it to be competitive? I think the tendency for a master's athlete is they're not able to do it efficiently because yeah. of mobility restrictions. Right. Whereas, you know, uh, you know, I like if Noah's in here, it could just literally be, hey, try moving your foot out an inch and, you know, doing this with your hands. And all of a sudden he's like, wow, that's way easier because he can do all those weird positions or like, hey, try doing this in your snaps and he can fix that. He's athletic. He's young. He can move. He obviously kind of like maybe has like kind of the, the ability to adapt that the, the, the the, his ability to adapt is much faster than that of a master's athlete. I guess probably the easiest way to say that without knocking on a 50-year-old. <laughs> but for someone that is 50, like I work with a lot of guys that are, let's say, 55 to 59, or you know, I, I have someone that I'm helping with it, games prep right now. It's 65 years old. And for him, getting his arms overhead, are, it's extremely challenging. So the, the first task that we had is, all right, we can't do overhead squats efficiently at all right now. So let's do this instead. We're going to do, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? All of these things where we're getting you to where you can just hold a barbell overhead. So we're spending, you know, maybe two hours a day, three days a week, just getting them into those positions. And that's all we did through May. And then once we got through that, now I said, okay, now let's put a little bit of weight on the bar and let's work on some overhead squat positions. And we did that for three weeks. And now we said, okay, this past week is the first time that we actually did some squat snatches. And He's only doing it with 95 pounds, but he's able to do it now. So we're trying to slowly learn how to be as efficient as possible. So his movement economy is not going to be perfect, but if we can kind of start fixing those things that maybe I can't get my arms overhead to now I can hold a barbell to now I can do it with weight to now I can do a dynamic movement like a squat snatch. Now we're building him to the ability to be able to do that at the games. He can test well. 
Mm. And we see it at the younger level too, right? Like uh, Frazier almost made some movements look just super aerobic because it was just so simple for him where other people that if you have any sort of uh, fault in your movement, it just makes it that much more difficult because you can't breathe in the position, can't hold the position, et cetera. And this might be a very loaded question, Brandon, but how would you go about in a very general way? How would you go about improving your movement economy for a master's athlete? Yeah. So I think the first thing is actually dialing up the positions that are needed for that. And I kind of think of movement in two ways. Uh, Max talks about this in our movement course. It's actually in the classroom, which is our education platform. But uh, the way that I look at it is kind of you have the the movement freedom that's needed for the requisite movement. So what I would mean by that is it's an overhead squat is can I get my arms, let's just say stacked overhead. Can I get a fully shoulder flexed position with my arms stacked overhead, my thoracic spine slightly extended, my pelvis neutral to be able to just like, if I had to hold a barbell overhead, if the answer to that is yes, okay, they have the freedom to get into that position. So they actually have the, the range of motion that's needed for that movement. The next step then is do they have the stability or the control, the strength in that in range to be able to hold that barbell, the 95 pounds, the 115 pounds, whatever is needed for that workout. The tendency for master's athletes is actually they don't have the range even, right? So like we have to start from square one to get them to that range. The tendency for younger athletes is usually they actually do have the movement freedom, but they don't have the neuromuscular control to be able to, to hold a barbell, especially younger athletes. Like you see a 15 year old that like can get their butt to the ground, but then if you put a bar in their hands, they just fall forward. Mm -hmm. It's just because they don't have the control in that. So that's kind of the difference between those two. When you're working with a master's athlete, the first First step that if, if they can't do it, so like if they don't pass the range of motion test, then the first thing is, okay, let's look, is it a, is it a soft tissue issue or is it like a mechanical or structural issue? Like if we're talking about the shoulder joint, is it something that we can fix, you know, just with fixing the soft tissue around the joint, whatever it may be. Right. Or is it like, Hey, the actual joint is restricted to where this is maybe, maybe, or maybe not take longer to actually, you know, create some adaptations there, but that would be the first step. And I layer in movement work, whether they need it or not, into all of their programs because I think it's important to keep them healthy long-term. But for example, with this master's athlete that's 65 plus, for him, he has to be able to do an overhead squat before the games. Now we're literally five and a half weeks out before he really tapers hard. I have to make sure that we're doing as much mobility work. So 60% of his training is probably movement-based work. And that doesn't wow. just mean like passive stretching. Like We use a lot of the functional range conditioning work if, you, if you're... Mm -hmm. Listeners have seen any of that, which is Andrew Ospina's stuff. We use a lot of like movement flow. So I, I take uh, still from Ido Portal and a lot of his like handstand progressions for him, uh, which has really helped. And then we have our own kind of philosophies that kind of dial up all of those things, right? Like I do a lot of passive range into like hard isometrics or advanced isometric works for these athletes. And then I also force him into some positions, right? It could be as simple as, hey, I'm going to have you take a training bar and you're going to get into a bottom of squat and you're going to hold an overhead squat for 10 and then as needed and they're going to do that for get into this position hold the barbell overhead and then i can kind of translate that or transfer over into actual overhead squat squats later on in training mm, yeah Man, that's fascinating. And to me, again, it's, it's a, it's an ego thing, right? They got to be able to dial it back and know that for 60% of your week, you're going to be working on positions and trying to get, you know, 
get through the boring stuff. And to me, that's, I, I keep coming back to it, but it's the idea of you got to put in this discipline now because it, in mo- it's going to be months, maybe even years from now before it feels better. And that's such a different thought process than, man, I'm just going to go in and smash myself doing thrusters and burpees today. Yeah. I think it's just the difference between like a short-term and long-term approach. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, it, it's so much easier for me to say as a coach now, because obviously I'm not the one putting in all the work. And I know again, how hard, hard it is to do the boring stuff to, to do all the mobility. But if you have a long term approach of, I want these things to be, I want to reach my full potential. Well, to be able to do that, we have to first like raise that ceiling as high as it can go. Right. Because I think one of the tendencies, and this is kind of taking a step back, but we see this ceiling that we may have, right? Like if it's right here, let's say this is a eight out of eight and that's all I can get. I can't get to the 10. If that's what you believe, then maybe you can smash up that eight out of eight as much as you want. But then everyone else is actually at that 10 out of 10. The reality is, is if we start doing the things that are boring, the movement work and cleaning up the movement economy and all those things we're talking about, maybe we can get that eight out of eight to a 10. And now I'm at an eight out of 10. Well, let's close that gap because now the ceiling's a little bit higher. So it's not just about reaching the potential that you have right now. It's about what is the actual potential that you can have. And so that's one of the conversations I have with my individual athletes. Think about this as a long-term project and let's see how high we can raise your ceiling. And and if we get there to where it's like, yeah, this is probably as good as you're going to get, then we can kind of talk about smashing your head into the wall and just training hard and kind of seeing whatever that is. But I think very few of us have ever been able to even come close to reaching that potential. And maybe it's just things that we can't control. Like for me right now with kids and wanting to take care of you know, my full-time job and my athletes, I'm not training the way that maybe I would if I were trying to be a games athlete. I'm fine with that. I'm content with that. I still want to do certain things. And so I practice those. But for a master's athlete, if that's not the goal, then maybe it is just, I want to be able to move well in my gym. You're not spending as much time on the mobility stuff, but you should still be spending some time on that so you can do all the things that are required of you for your gym workouts. Oh, that's awesome, man. I really like that analogy of the ceiling. That's great. What, so what what mistakes do you think people are making or CrossFit athletes, competitive masters athletes are making? What mistakes do you think they're making when it comes to trying to improve movement economy? Are there things that are like, man, you're wasting your time on this, or this just maybe isn't worth your time. Um, what are some mistakes? Yeah, I think that if they are spending time on mobility, I think one of the easiest ones would probably just be doing a lot of passive stretching and, you know, not to get in a huge debate here, but I, I think that the research is pretty clear that stretching is only good for stretching, right? Like, you know, like literally it does nothing for your actual performance unless you're actually making like true neuromuscular adaptations. And that requires like advanced movement work, advanced isometrics, those kind of things. So if you're just doing passive stretching, not saying that that's bad, I do it all the time because it's an easy way for me to kind of get back to that, you know, quote unquote, parasympathetic state after training. I like to calm myself down because I am very high strung after training sessions. And I think it's good for master's athletes, but if that's the only movement work you're doing, it's going to be very challenging to see the progress that you want to see. And that's kind of what I mean by the, you can get the movement freedom, but you can't get the stability needed without doing more movement-based work. And, and obviously that's a totally different conversation, but there's more to that than just doing like a ROMWOD or something like that. Again, not to knock on ROMWOD, but that's just the, the nature of kind of creating movement adaptations, especially at an older age. I think, I think that we do go too hard. I know that's kind of what we keep going back to, but we have so many master's athletes that come on board in the design or as individuals that reach out that have just been following these other blogs that they're doing CrossFit workouts every day, four rounds per time, 20 minute AMRAP, you know, one mile run into a Murph style workout into something else. And they're like, my body is broken. And at that age, like it does, there, there's a time and a place to go 
more hard and to push yourself. But when you're 55 and under eating and stressed by your job, you know, I would assume that most of those people, their hormones are out of whack. They're not sleeping very well. You know, there are all these compounding factors that probably aren't lending themselves to creating adaptations that they need at the right time. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Yeah. I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head, man. So under, I see a lot of things under eating overstressed, uh, you're continuing to smash your head every single day. Uh, so Brandon, for the person that's at the gym, they're maybe just trying to be the most competitive at their gym. Would you say out of a five day week, Brandon was is like, Hey man, on, on Thursday, instead of the CrossFit workout, I'm going to do some lower intensity stuff. How would a week look like for a master's athlete compared to a individual athlete when it comes to trying to balance everything that they have in their lives? Yeah, I think it it's obviously still depends on the age of the master's athlete. So the 35 to 39 year old, just want to be good in their gym. They probably can do training days of the week, maybe pull back on one of those days. For the 50-year-old that has a full-time job and kids still living at home and a lot of other stressors, uh, I would say that they probably only need, you know, maybe even one or two hard training sessions a week if they, if they want to be good at CrossFit. Like if they don't want to be good at CrossFit, I don't see the point of ever just like bearing yourself to the ground. And I know that may be controversial and people are like, no, 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 I want to do it. But I, I just don't see the benefit there. You, know, you could do some sprint style. Uh, workouts or other things are high one or two hard workouts a couple where you pull back where it's just like still working on the techniques i know everyone even 50 years old wants to be good at a snatch or you know maybe a clean or hey i want to be able to do a muscle up like those are totally fine i think those are like actually like really cool goals to have but you need more time working on the technique of those to be good at them and less on doing you know uh nine six three squat snatch and burby box jump like the stage two workout or something like that. Like it, it just doesn't, that's not going to help you with your snatch long-term. Uh, and then probably one easy day. I, I would say that most of us do need that mobility kind of like almost like a, a relax and refresh. Uh, and I do that with all of my younger athletes too. Like there's a day where they're basically flushing everything out and that's one of their actual training days. That's not like a, Hey, this is my rest day. I'm going to go do recovery work by riding the bike for 90 minutes. It's like, no, it's like, let's do that in one of your training days and then take Thursday completely off. I, I think resting more makes the most sense. And uh, I've probably changed my mind on this more and more over the years, just kind of seeing athletes, but like you can be a really high level athlete and train 45 to 60 minutes a day. Can you make the games? Probably not, mm-hmm. but you could be really good in your gym. You can be really competitive in even like a stage two setting, as long as you're doing the right things. Could you walk through for the people that are listening with pen and paper here, walk through what that flush day would look like. What would that look like in a program designed for you? If it's someone that has mobility restrictions, then I will typically uh, um, write in the movement, uh, whatever the movement work that I want to fix those restrictions into like some cyclical based work. So what that may look like is, hey, on a seven minute clock, they jump on the, you know, whatever, a biker, and they're doing a biker for a couple of minutes at a certain pace, a lower effort, right? And then they'll do, let's say, for me, I've been working a ton on my knee right now. So I don't know if you've seen any of the knees over toes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, ben Patrick is the guy's name. He has some amazing, amazing work. So I would tell all of your listeners, go check him out. I mean, it's incredible. It's really helped me out. I've had multiple knee surgeries on my left knee. So what I would do, like, let's say if it was someone like me, two minute easy biker into some, let's just say two sets of tibialis raises and two sets of calf raises where I'm just working around that knee. And then two minutes of uh, row erg into now I'm going to do some movement flow stuff that's still focused on the knee, natural knee extensions into terminal knee extensions into some, you know, whatever duck walks, right? Into a two minute, whatever you name the other thing, ski erg. And I'll just kind of rotate through those. I know that's a, a quick example, but 
I kind of like that kind of work because then it allows them to be able to kind of go back and forth between certain things that they need to work on, but also keep their heart rate at, you know, let's say 120 to 140 beats per minute while they're doing the movement work. They are like, this is my training for the day. So they're more bought into like, I need to do something. They feel like they're doing something as opposed to it just being like that extra session where it's like, Hey, this is your, you know, did I lose you again? Nope. I'm with you there. Uh, yeah, I think, I think just to piggyback okay, on sorry. it too, I think, no, you're good. I think the, it also gives them an idea of, yes, they got to sweat in and afterwards they feel like they got a good workout. And yes, in, in, in more ways than one, it was a good workout, but so, sometimes people right. just crave that feeling of, I need to sweat after my day of work and I need to feel that feel. And so, so you can kind of be sneaky in a sense. So I, I like that. I think the listeners can take away something about, you know, you grab a machine, two minutes on a machine, mix it with some movement work. You kind of get the best of both worlds. Yeah, for sure. I, I, that's one of the things I do every single week. I love it. It's still, like you said, even for me, like I still, yeah, I want to sweat. I want to breathe. I want to feel like I'm doing something. But again, something impactful is the easy, boring stuff as opposed to just being hard all the time. The, the third thing you brought up, and this is going back earlier on some of the things that uh, are your core values, is working on the absolute strength numbers. And I w this is something that's super, I, I want to get more clarity on, learn more selfishly. So we, we know that absolute strength numbers are really important for master's athletes, especially now, um, knowing the test that we just saw this last year. And we also know, too, that there should be or, you know, you can tell me a lot of value in having, being able to express high skills, like doing a muscle up can move you really far on a leaderboard. So I guess what yeah. I'd like to get more clarification on from you and for masters athletes out there is how much weight, uh, no pun intended, are you putting into absolute strength numbers versus attaining some of the higher skills? What's more important to you and how do you kind of break those down for masters athletes? I would say that the absolute strength matters more because that lends itself better to the higher skills as opposed to just being good at the higher skills. Typically, those that are good aren't very strong, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. if we spend more time in the off seasons, let's say right now, someone just missed out on the games. Uh, I actually have an athlete who finished uh, 28th. So he was eight spots out. Very, very good athlete. Just had one, the, the GHD workout just crushed him, right? So otherwise he'd be in but we know exactly what he needs to get better at right now. He's still spending time. Hey, I said, let's get as strong as possible for the next, you know, basically four months, like leading into the fall. And then we'll come back to the GHDs, the rope climbs, the pistols, because that's what really crushed him. Now he's adding those into his program. He's doing plenty of that work. It's just not in that setting. So like for his GHDs, I know this is going off topic, but I think something that maybe you're it for a master's athlete, you can think about this for his GHD work right now, because he just got wrecked by them. We weren't doing a ton. Like that was on me that, you know, he was doing maybe 50 a week, but not 150. <laughs> so <laughs> that, you know, we, we were prepping him, but not for 150 reps. So he, I don't want him doing 150 GHDs a week. I don't, I, there, the, uh, Stu McGill has some good research on this. Very clear that it can damage this, especially as you get older. Um, I, I don't think it's the, the best thing to test, but they're going to test it. It's going to be a part of the sport. Same thing as like me saying, you know, Hey, I played football and, got a ton of concussions, probably not smart, but I still do it. Right. So that's the same thing, probably not smart to do GHDs, but we do them. So for his work, it's a long way of saying he's doing tempo based work and some isometric based work for his GHDs right now. So one way that we look at it is 12 reps on the GHD, holding a five pound dumbbell at a three, zero, three, zero tempo, where basically he's going down slowly, reaches full extension, comes up slowly, does 12 reps, drops the dumbbell, and then a 15 second isometric hold in a hollow position. And then the next week, we just progress that over and over again and kind of build that into actual GHD work. That allows us to be able to create some of the core control that's needed 
for the sport without doing 150 GHDs. Now we're totaling up because he's doing two different variations of that a week. We're still totaling over a hundred reps on the GHD each week, but Mm -hmm. not in a dynamic setting yet. Now, when we get to, let's say December of this year or January, when we really start prepping for the open, he'll do dynamic work, but we're hoping that this lends itself to being ready for that without having to do them all year round, if that makes sense. Now, I know that doesn't answer your question, but that's just one way of kind of thinking about the skills in the sport. For the strength stuff though, if I say to him or any master's athlete, if we can get your squat stronger, your pull stronger, your upper body pulling and pressing stronger, then that's going to lend itself to the high skills that you have to be good at in the sport. What are those? Well, let's say for lower body, most, mostly the limitation is the pistol. And some of that is movement, but it's also just the control in the bottom. So if his squat's stronger, his swing, single leg strength is stronger, we'll be able to get pistols faster than if we just worked on pistols all year. Now, what we're doing for that right now is working on all the mobility restrictions that he has so that he can do pistols. But we're also just working on single leg strength by itself in another setting so that both of those kind of lend itself to each other. For the upper body, let's say muscle-ups. Uh, this athlete that I'm talking about, he does have muscle-ups. They just didn't come out, which really sucks for him because that's that would have been his bread and butter, right? But if he didn't have muscle-ups, I still would say we're only working on the technical aspects of the muscle-up, at least through, let's say, August or September of this year. Now we're going to do a ton of strict gymnastic strength. That's still absolute strength in my mind. Like gymnastic strength is still in the category of we're working on true strength. So you'd be doing weighted variations, ring variations, straight arm and bent arm variations on the rings and on the pull-up bar. And that would be most of our work. And then when we get into kind of deep into the fall or leading into the winter, that's when we would spend more time again on the dynamic stuff, the the muscle-ups. But look, if he goes from, let's say, a 30-pound weighted pull-up to a 70-pound weighted pull-up, that's only going to help his muscle-ups. Whereas if we just worked on muscle-ups and didn't do any strength work, he's not stronger and maybe he has muscle-ups, but he's, again, if something's tested where it is a 1RM pull-up or a heavy squat or heavy deadlift, and we're not working on those things, those are much harder to, to create adaptations closer to the season. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think too, as people age, or we know as people age, it gets harder and harder to, to get stronger or get PRs or become stronger than you were before. I mean, surely it can happen depending on training age and when you're started and kind of your surroundings, but how do you, what's your advice for people that are aging yet trying to still get stronger in the sport of CrossFit? Are there some things that you've learned along the way, whether it's a volume thing or exercise selection, is there anything that you would recommend when it comes to trying to still get stronger, even even though we're in our forties and fifties. Yeah. I think that it obviously depends on their training age mm-hmm. and then the, t- the amount of time they have in the gym and recovery. So for those that are just like super, super busy and are trying to get stronger, I would say that your only work in the gym needs to be strength work. Like you need to basically cut out all the higher volume CrossFit and breathing work and all of that, at least for the time that you're trying to get stronger. It's just really, and, and look, CrossFit kind of has broken this, this mold, right? Like we have, I see Travis who's getting better at CrossFit and strength work at the same time. He snatched 300 pounds, but his CrossFit metrics are also just as good or if not better than they've ever been, but he's also young and he trains six hours a day and he only trains like that's obviously he has a full-time job as well, but he has other people that are helping him with that. So his whole focus is on CrossFit. When you're 50 years old and you, again, you have a family and a full-time job, it's just really hard to be able to do all those things and balance it. And I also think like, the biological age plays a role in this too, where, you know, if you're 50, it's just going to be harder, especially, I mean, based on the research, it's harder to create those adaptations, especially as, you know, you may, maybe some of the things that allow us to get stronger as men kind of start to dissipate a little bit, you know, later in, in life. So I would say that they need to focus more on the actual strength work, cut out some of the 
higher volume skill and breathing work or the CrossFit work and just focus on that. And the nice thing too, is like, that's still the number one predictor of who does well in the, the master's divisions, especially as you get older is their strength metrics. That's not to say there aren't exceptions because there are exceptions to the rules on everything, but those that did really well this year all had really good front squats and they were all really good at the overhead squat workout, which is obvious because those were two of the, you know, four like legitimate tests. But if all the tests are heavy, then you have to be strong. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. I think the common theme here, and I don't want to speak for you, Brandon, but the common theme I'm picking up on this conversation is that some, if you want to be competitive, a competitive master's athlete, a common theme here is that most of us need to slow down put a little bit more emphasis on strength work, have a little bit more priority on your year and no kind of, you know, at what points do we dial up and dial down? And maybe I'm speaking this more because we're in the beginning of the off season for most people, but generally speaking, most masters athletes probably need to slow down on the high intensity work, put in a little bit more movement economy, a movement economy type session, and then also dial up the strength work a little bit more. Would you agree to that? Yeah, I think that that probably is the best recipe for success for almost every athlete. And again, there are outliers there that can kind of just crush it or those that come into the sport that are naturally strong. And so they need to spend more time on, you know, building a quote unquote aerobic base or whatever you want to call that. But for most of us and most of the athletes in the sport, we come in with bad movement economy and we're relatively weak compared to where we need to be. So that needs to be the priority. Mm -hmm. Cool, man. I uh, sent out a post uh, earlier in the week on Instagram for Masters Athletes to chime in any questions. And we have some really good ones, man. So uh, Sweet. We'll, we'll take a couple of them and feel free to, if it's one sentence, great. If it's a long answer, that's cool too. But uh, we'll get through as many as we can. But uh, the first one here says, what factors do you see, if any, differentiating between the typical Masters athlete who comes to the box or the gym during the week for fitness, health, and longevity to generally just hold off decrepitation and those Masters <laughs> And those masters athletes with the intention of competing. So yeah, the difference, the differences between the people who are just trying to go for longevity, uh, health and fitness versus the masters athletes who have the intention of competing. What sort of uh, differences or factors do you see when it comes to those two? Well, the, the performance factors would just be strength and their ability to do high skill movements. So like if we looked at a leaderboard, that those would obviously be the differences. And again, that's just because the testing body has been heavier workouts, right? Instead of it maybe being 55, 35, now you're talking about 115, 80, even for the you know 55 plus division. So being stronger and having some of the high skill matter the most. The the mental difference, I think, is just that they have a very specific goal and it becomes less of a hobby and more of like a, like, I, I have to have this. It kind of reminds me of like, I, I play golf all the time now and there's these club golfers that like want to win the club championship. The way that they practice is just so much different than I go out there and practice. Like I'm just hitting balls and joking around and having fun. Like they're out there with the sticks and the, all the, you know, the, the technique kits and everything like that. And so that would be kind of the difference there. Yep. Uh, what... What are some gender differences that you have noticed in masters athletes? And I think we, we can kind of go from the 35 to 65. Are there any sort of notes or things that you've learned along the years, Brandon, of coaching with men versus women? Maybe it's an intensity thing, recovery thing, or resiliency, anything that you've kind of noticed between men versus women in the master's division? Yeah, the, the general trend that I've seen over the last couple of years is that women are, who are good at the sport are much more enduring than they are strong. So that's the one kind of when we talk about strength, um, the, the women that get into it that are good, the thing that they need to get better is still the strength, like their overall strength metrics. We have a ton of people in the design now that like these women are just like, eat, they're doing the same 
things on the row erg or the bike erg and they hit the same AMRAP numbers as some of these men, it's just like, wow, they are so incredibly aerobically fit. Um, but they obviously still need to get stronger with, with, with the men. I think the tendency is that almost everyone that comes in the sport that's good has some tendency to be able to find a way to hold the barbell overhead. Those that aren't cannot hold a barbell overhead. So I know that maybe doesn't answer the question, but that's a quick test to know if you're going to be able to be competitive right away. A lot of these guys come in and like, they may be fit, they may be strong, but if they can't get into an overhead position, it limits them in all of the gymnastics positions. It limits them in handstand walking if that's tested. And then obviously in the thruster, the overhead squat and the snatch. Would you say, Brandon, that that's the most, um, I don't know if the right word is the biggest fault, but if you were to look at, uh, just lack for a better term, yeah, is that the biggest fault, the, move, the biggest movement fault that you see with people who are trying to be competitive? Is it that overhead position? Yeah, I actually think the overhead position is more important than the squatting position. Uh, I know that that may seem crazy, but you know, the, the, the reality is, is that we can find ways around the squat position with these lifters and versa lifts and like all these heel lifts, whatever brand that you have you can get around that, which is kind of stacking your heel up and then figuring it out from there. People were have these like super thick knee sleeves that kind of like let them still like bounce out of the bottom so they can just drop really fast and still reach depth. Like there are all these things that we can do, but with the overhead position, like we're exposed. And even if it's not a squat in the sport, there's still something overhead. So like maybe your squat sucks, but it's not just that with the overhead because it's not the snatch and the overhead squat and the thruster. Now it's, again, we're talking about handstand walking, handstand push-ups, uh, any kind of dumbbell variation where we're going overhead, any kind of overhead walking lunge, and then all of the gymnastics on the rings of the bar. If you don't have a good overhead position, it's very hard to be able to sync that up correctly to do a, a proper kip or a butterfly. I'm asking you very loaded questions here, and, I, and I'm sorry for that, but what, what do you think are some tips for people? I'm just, I'm just imagining the person, master's athlete in their car right now going, man, this is me. I'm raising my hand because I cannot, I don't have a good overhead position. Where would you start with somebody like that? I know it's very one-on-one but based, but where, where would you kind of go? Yeah, I think that they need to figure out what the limitation is first. So uh, there are way too many things that I don't even know about, so I'm not going to pretend like I could give you perfect an answers here. But the, the, the things that I first look at is, is it a shoulder restriction? Like, is it that they can't get their shoulder into a fully flexed position? Meaning, can they just get their arms overhead? Is it a scapular issue or a lat issue, something tight, like a pec, some kind of soft tissue issue in the front or the back of their upper back? Is it a thoracic issue where they don't have proper rotation of the thoracic spine or an extension flexion issue in the thoracic spine? Uh, or even sometimes it can be a cervical issue where maybe their, their, their neck is too far forward that actually kind of restricts the shoulder joint from getting into a fully flexed position. So there are all of these things that may be causing that we have to kind of dial that in first because some people may be saying, well, I'm just stretching my shoulders, you know, whatever that may, may mean, but they're not actually targeting the thing that they need to improve on. So one of the things that I would tell people to do is go in. If you have someone that can do this and just run upper body assessment on, look at, you know, do like a wall shoulder flexion test, do a thoracic extension inflection test, do a cervical rotation and flexion extension test. Uh, and then look at the scapula and make sure that it's working correctly. And then from there, okay, these three things are working really well, but this isn't and start dialing that up as much as you can. And then I would say just in general, make sure that you're always doing stuff, doing some kind of movement work on your shoulders, even if they feel good, because the tendency as we get older, especially for those that are sitting at a computer all day, as we know, is to become pretty kyphotic and 
have what's called upper cross syndrome, which I know is like a overly used term, but the tendency is, is like, that's just kind of where we go, especially in like the American culture where we are sitting all of the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. I see it every single day. Um, next question here. Uh, if and how should masters athletes think about refining their diet for the demands of preparing for and for competing? I would say that the tendency is most people are under eating. Mm-hmm. I am not a nutritionist by any means, and I always refer out. So I, you know, obviously, the, the what I do with my athletes is, hey, send me a week uh, when, like, let's say that we're doing an assessment. So someone comes on, we do an assessment. They send me a week of their food log. And then from there, we have a conversation about, hey, these things look a little off. I'm going to refer you out to Becky Rogers, who's our nutritionist on site. And from there, they can have a conversation with her and kind of dial that up. I think the thing, again, that I see most though is that people are just like so, so underfed. And maybe that's because they're busy. Maybe that's because of aesthetics. Maybe that's because people just don't understand how much you actually need to eat. They think that they're eating enough. So all of those things are just common misconceptions. But if you want to, if you want to perform well, sometimes you don't look as good. <laughs> that's yep. kind of the easiest way to put it. And that's not to say that you still won't look good, but you're just not going to be super lean. Like I even look at some of these women that are in the 34 and under divisions and how lean they are. And I just wonder if how much better would they be if they ate a little bit more? You know what I mean? Like they're so lean. Uh, I, it looks like they're underfed. They're not recovering well between sessions. I just wonder where the limit is. And I don't think that the best, like Fraser he was eating enough. I can assure you of that, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons that he, he succeeded. And I think Tia Toomey and others like her are also eating enough. So uh, that, that'd be the, my first tip. Yep. I love that. I'm very passionate about that topic, but I'm going to leave my rant out of it. Cause I think, I think, <laughs> I think as a society, man, whether you're com- competing or not, I just think people are under eating and it's just, yeah, it drives me bonkers. But anyway, let's go to the next one here. These are good questions. I really like this one. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how would you recommend a master's athlete take the first step from being a regular group class participant to competing at any level? I'm biased, but I would say talk to a coach, talk to somebody that you, you trust and have a full consult about, Hey, here are my numbers. My goal is to X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. Like, Hey, I want to make stage two or the online qualifier. I want to make the games in three years, whatever it is, let them know your goals and let that coach give you feedback on the steps to get there as opposed, because I don't know what their goals are. So I, I, I think that's kind of the first thing. And we have, you know, like in the design, I have master's athletes that reach out and we just do little 30 minute consults. And basically they, they lay out all their numbers. The cool thing about how we have it in the design is we have a system that logs all of them. So they reach out, I can look at all their numbers. And then when we sit down and say, Hey, what are your actual goals? And then I look at their numbers and just say, Hey, your squat snatch is here. I think you probably need to be here. This is where you, what you look like when you do handstand walks. This is what we need to do, blah, blah, blah. You kind of name whatever it is. And we can kind of actually dial up a, a plan for them. As far as training goes, you know, I think that the time that most people are spending, believe it or not, like even in the one hour classes is a good place to start. Like you don't need to spend hours and hours and hours in the gym. At some point, if you're prepping for the games, then yeah, you're going to have to do probably multiple sessions leading up to the games because you have to get in water and you have to go on a run. And, but I think people think that it's going to, in a master's division, it's going to require more time than it does. I think people just waste too much time. Like they Mm -hmm. spend so much time in the gym, just kind of, you know, messing around as opposed to getting their training actually in. Yeah. Great advice. We have a couple more, Brandon. The the next one is, we kind of talked about this before, but this is more from a coach's side. Some masters athletes can be very set in their ways. What recommendations do you have for them to consider competing and working with coaches who may be very much younger than them? 
Yeah, I could see that being a challenge. And I think that's been a challenge with athletes that I've worked with. You know, like when I started, I, I've been with Training Think Tank for almost seven years. So I was 24 when I started with Training Think Tank. I was coaching at, you know, 21. I graduated college and went down as a strength and conditioning coach in Florida. Now I was working with younger athletes then, but then I started helping out with some combine prep athletes and doing some other stuff. And there were older guys that had to listen. And I think as a coach, and this isn't answering the question, but as coaches, we need to also be humble and, you know, collaborate with the athletes. Hey, what are you thinking? Like, how are you feeling? What do you think about this? And then also help educate them. That's like, Hey, I also am invested in your success. Mm. The, the silly thing is when athletes are like getting frustrated with the, the failures that they have, like the coach is also not frustrated with those things. You know, every person I work with, I want them to succeed because one that helps them that keeps them with me longer. And then selfishly that helps my brand. You know, I, I know that you know, people don't necessarily think about it that way, but that's true. Like the, the more people that we get better, the better that training think tank looks or the better that I look or whatever it may be. Sometimes that's not a performance metric. Sometimes I just want people to feel good or, you know, live a healthy life, whatever it may be, but that's success. So to answer that question, I think that as a, as an athlete, you need to find someone again that you can trust that knows what they're talking about. There are a lot of coaches that I don't think know what they're talking about, but if you find a coach that has a purpose for what they're doing, even if it's the wrong thing, I think you're fine. You're, you're getting a coach that at least is passionate about what they're doing. So like make sure that you have someone that knows exactly what they're doing, ask them the why's and you know, the why nots, whatever it may be, and allow them to explain that to you. The last topic here is something that I wanted to get into is just talking about recovery. And that's what the last kind of two questions combined were, where how do you balance athletic competitive volume with recovery? And then what sort of recipe for recovery do you have for masters athletes who come to the gym during the week for fitness versus maybe those who are more for the competition side? I think, I think one thing that all masters athletes can come into agreement on is that the recovery gets harder and harder to, you know, bounce back between sessions. What advice do you have. I know we talked before about maybe the Wednesday session being more of that flush session. Are there any other tips that you have when it comes to boosting recovery as you age? Yeah, I think the first thing is talking to a, if, if you had a coach, for example, talking to your coach about making sure that the training's not too hard throughout the week, right? So like as a, I think a good coach or a good indicator for an athlete would be if I'm doing three or four really hard sessions back to back to back to back, it's just going to be impossible to recover at that age, unless you're like super resilient, which very few are maybe the, just the best in the sport. So the first thing on a coach's side is to make sure that you're kind of alternating days. I like to kind of undulate the week a little bit and then kind of undulate from week to week, which days are hard, which days are easy. So maybe it's like Monday, Wednesday, Friday are quote unquote, higher volume, harder days. Tuesdays and Saturdays are easier days. And then the next week it's Tuesday and Saturday are hard days. And then we have three easier days. But if I can keep that progression going for like, let's say a 12 week cycle, it typically allows them to not be as beat up and still create progress. And then that first thing that we talked about in this podcast is it allows them to create some consistency. So now that in 12 weeks, they had 60 training sessions. They had, you know, 48 that were really good okay, we're on track. Like we're doing a pretty good job or, you know, maybe even more than 48. The thing for an athlete to do is to make sure that obviously one, they warm up well, which I know again, takes longer and requires more time as you get older, but having good routine. So I always tell people, don't try to reinvent the wheel, come up with some game plans that, you know, on squat days, here's my warm up. It's going to take me 12 minutes to do. I'm going to start it right away. I'm not going to talk to a bunch of people and get distracted. I'm going to focus on this and crush it on my overhead days. This is what I'm going to do. And also have a cool down plan. So mm. part of that 
is the nutrition side of things like we talked about. And again, I, I wouldn't speak on that, but having a game plan for the supplementation nutrition that you're going to have. And then also having a game plan for how my cool down is going to work each day, always having a cool down as opposed to just leaving the gym and jumping in your car, which look, I am guilty of too. Like I have to run off and pick up the kids from school or whatever. It's like, sometimes I do that, but I always make sure at night that I have a cool down routine that I do. So like when I go to right before I go to bed and put the kids down, my wife and I may hang out. I have 15 minutes that I dedicate to, I put on a podcast, something like that. And I have a whole mobility routine. I do the same exact thing every single evening before bed. And that really, really helps. Mm, I love, I love the intention. Uh, last two things here. Are there any specific resources you'd recommend for master's athletes to explore or look into if they're interested in competing at some sort of a higher level? Yeah, we have some good stuff. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's free or not. That, that's the challenge is, it, you know, so, some of the stuff in the design, you could probably go to our website, trainthinkthink.com uh, forward slash DSGN. And there's some master's stuff on there in our FAQ. I'm pretty sure that's free. And then obviously in our classroom, we have plenty of stuff on master's athletes, the way that we train them, um, the way to think about the season, the structure, how to prep for competitions, how to come off a competition and properly, you know, recover. Um, I think that, you know, it, because the sport is still so infantile and that there aren't many good resources out there and the masters masters have kind of been left on the wayside. Like we talked about, you know, that it hasn't really been an important part of the sport. I don't, I, I don't think it'd be fair for me to necessarily recommend anything. I don't know anything out there that's necessarily great. Um, but I would say that just in general, coming up with a game plan for yourself on how to recover and, you know, finding a routine that helps with, you know, whatever it may be, making sure that you feel good each day, make sure you're in a good mood, having a self-check for yourself. Every single morning, I have people write down um, for me in an email, how they feel, how they slept, what their nutrition plan is for the day, just so that they're kind of dialing those things up. I think that's just like an easy thing you can do. I know it's not a resource, but that's one way to kind of start that progress, that process. Totally. As we wrap up here, any sort of other last words of wisdom for our master's athlete? Just thinking if somebody's just, they've been tuning out this whole time, or maybe just uh, they got their pen and paper ready. Any last pieces of wisdom that you have, generally speaking, for master's men and female athletes? Yeah, I think the first thing is make sure that you are recovered. That's kind of been the theme of everything that we've talked about, but make sure that you're recovered uh, as much as you can from day to day and week to week. Number two is make sure that your movement economy is as good as possible before you get into competition. If you do that, you're already taking a leap forward on the field. And then the last thing is write down all of your training metrics and then clearly define what the limitations are. I think that that's one of the tendencies that we don't do or we don't do properly. Most athletes just say, oh, I did really bad in this workout. And then it's like, I just need to train this workout. Well, I want to know the why. It's like, what movement in there? Is it all the movements, the combination of movements? Is it a certain you know, thing that, that was it the way that I trained that day? Whatever it may be, right? And I think part of that is having someone on your side to help you do that. Like one of the things that we do really well, and, and again, I know that I'm biased, but one of the things that we do really well here is we collect all of that data and I can dial up exactly where people are gaining or losing time in workouts, what movements they're gaining and losing time on. And then when we combine them all, what do we need to do to get them better on a performance side so that they can be competitive? Very cool. Brandon, that was fun, man. Tons of info, tons of information for masters athletes to, to get, to get better at the sport or just get better uh, at their gym. I appreciate you taking the time. I think our connection got better as we went on. I think turning off the camera yeah. was probably the right move. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Sorry. <laughs> You're good, man. All good. Uh, anyway, any other ways that we and my listeners can support you, Brandon? Yeah. I mean, I think that the biggest support that we can have right now is just uh, checking out trainingthinktank.com, checking out our online program, you know, I think that that's kind of the, the future of the sport is getting small 
online groups together. So like with our master's group, we have a really tight knit master's community right now. And then as it grows, we're going to have tight knit communities within the division. So like, we'll kind of separate that even more. So like all our 35 to 39 will be in a group and I'll help train them. And then our 55 to 59 will be in a group. And so that's a really cool thing to do. If you don't want individual training, that's still like we dial up like, Hey, there's these 15 guys in 55 to 59. And then we're going to kind of look at all their weaknesses, come up with a game plan for them and really build a program that makes sense for them. But they also have that community aspect where they're holding each other accountable. They go train with each other. The cool thing on there is you see people all the time, like someone yesterday was like, Hey, I'm going to be in, you know, wherever New Jersey this week in any gyms and three people posted on there and said, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, come over to my gym. So that's, I think the future of where we're going with the, with the online training program. And obviously we have the classroom as well, which is our educational resource. Um, that's also on trainingthinktank.com. That's awesome, man. I, I don't want to go back into conversation here, but I am just curious. The so the the masters athletes, it's it's like a thirty year division, but uh, there's yeah. many, there's many pockets in between. Do you see there being like um from either from a programming standpoint or just a physio- physiological standpoint, like big drop offs or gains, like from a pocket to pocket? Like, is there a big difference between thirty five to thirty nine versus forty to forty four? Is there is there big? Does that does that make sense? Are you following me? Yeah, th- there there's a huge drop off if you look at the like the broad in the broader sense from like 35 to 39 to again, like using that example of 55 to 59, obviously, because that 20 year gap is just tremendous. Um, but what, one of the things that you'll see with the biggest drop off in performance metrics is actually going from the early forties to the 50 to 54. And here's why, because at 55, all the weights get lowered and you uh, get elevation for handstand pushups. Mm. You have a shorter handstand walk. If it comes out, like basically everything becomes modified. Whereas if you're 54 and you're still in that 50 to 54 division, you have a one-year difference, but you're doing all of the same weights that Noah or Travis or Frazier when he was competing are doing, yeah. and it just makes it so much harder for them. So the, the last thing I would say is that's the next change in the sport. It has to be. It's one of the things that I have actually tried to push for. Obviously, you know, we do our best to what we can, but you know, we can only give feedback. It's not like <laughs> we're making the decisions, but the next change needs to be modifying for each of the age groups so that it's fair. Uh, but it also allows them to be, you know, competitive within their group. So 50 to 54 or 45 to 49 need to have different modifications than again, the 18 year old. It seems crazy that they don't now, you know, no, it's I like, agree. you're like, what the hell? Like, you know, we're divvying out the open sheets at the gym and I'm doing the same workout as the 44 <laughs> year old. You're like, this, this cannot be, How? this can't be right. I know. I know. It's <laughs> insane. It's actually insane to me. I mean, they're doing 185 pound snatches and taking an extra three minutes on it. And it's just, uh, it's, it's not the same workout. And so if they're trying to get the same workout, it needs to be different for sure. Right. So if you are 50 years old out there listening, I encourage you to hang on to 55 because once you get to 55, the workouts will change tremendously. Would you say just hold on a little bit longer? <laughs> yeah. Well, in any division, I also think that that's important. So if for for those that are master athletes that want to be competitive, the, the best time to do that truly is two years before you change age group, start training really hard. Or in, again, by hard, I mean smart. Mm-hmm. And then let's say if I'm going from you know, whatever, 44 to now the 45 to 49, that youngest group is always the most competitive. Now there are the outliers again, but if you look at the 20 in each age group, it's always the, you know, 45, 46, and then it's 50 to 51 and then 55, 56. There are very few that are the oldest in the age group that are still making it because at that age, like it, there is some deterioration and it's just about learning how to kind of mitigate that deterioration as much as we can. 
Very cool. That was fun, man. Uh, guys, if you uh, want to hear more about this stuff, make sure to check out, obviously, not this not this episode, but the other episode that Brandon was a part of a couple of years back. I'll tag it in the show notes. Also, I'm a huge proponent of everything Training Think Tank's doing. I'm in a part of their extended family. I get coached by Kyle Ruth. And so everything that Training Think Tank puts out, I'm a big fan of. So make sure to check out what they're doing. Um, all their stuff is very trustworthy and at the top of the game, in my opinion, when it comes to being competitive in the sport of CrossFit. The design is also a great platform. I highly encourage you guys to check that out. I'm a part of that as well. So uh, we'll see you guys next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast. Take care.